Gina Della from Pella. Choose five years no interest and five months no first payment or 10-year 2.99 APR financing. Ends August 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855-PELLA-WI. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. We are awaiting, again, the remarks of President Biden. Supposed to start about seven minutes ago, and he's he's late. Um, he's going to be speaking again about Afghanistan, talking about uh, the the troop withdrawal and all the problems that are going on. Interestingly, there's new reports out. And we were talking about this a little bit during the news, where apparently, like there were all sorts of advisors who were saying, "Hey, uh, Mr. President, what you need to do is you need to start the evacuation of the Afghani citizens who've been supporting, you know, the the U.S." war efforts over the last two decades we need to start getting them out and and that was in july and apparently there was nothing done on that which has led to the problems as we've talked about in the last few days my my beef is less with the decision to pull out of afghanistan even though you know we have had troops in in europe since the end of world war ii massive troop presence we've had a massive troop presence in in korea since the end of the korean war we, we have troops stationed all over the globe, and the number of troops in Afghanistan was really very, very small, 2,500. There hasn't been a loss of life of an American troop for at least a, a year that's there, so you do kind of wonder about the urgency. But again, my complaint has never been about the decision ultimately to pull troops out of Afghanistan. It, it's the way they did it. And I, I, if the, the explanation is going to be, well, the military advisors and the people around Joe Biden didn't realize that the government was in such a precarious position, I'm not sure if that's a defense or not, because then you wonder, really? I mean, is our intelligence that bad? Is our assessment that bad? In any event, once the president speaks, our intention is to bring his remarks, and that's supposed to come up any minute. All right. I had an experience last night that I think it might be the first time this has happened to me. I went to the Maroon 5 concert at Summerfest. More on that in just a minute. Saw the band. And and I, it, it, this is the first time, I think, in probably 50 years that I have gone to a concert and I did not know one song from the band. Not, not one song. Now, my wife, she knew some of the songs. She was standing up there singing. Some of our friends that we were with, uh, my friend Kathy, she was singing and dancing along. The I had no clue, which isn't to say I didn't like the show. It's just I didn't know any of the songs, which has kind of demonstrated to me this hole in my musical knowledge because I, I think I have – an extensive knowledge of music from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. It starts to get less extensive when it gets to the 90s. And Maroon 5 is, of course, a band that's kind of a pop band that came to prominence, you know, in the early aughts. And I just I just didn't know. It didn't say it wasn't a good show, but I'm sitting there thinking, I just don't know a single song that these people have. And I and it was kind of like, boy, I, I just I've got to work on expanding my musical knowledge. But it, it was it was a very good show. But but here's the larger point of all this. Um, if people are hesitant about going down to Summerfest in a couple of weeks because of the requirements, my, my answer would be don't be. Um, the, the show, 
I don't know. I thought there were more people that the Journal Sentinel review of the show, which is not particularly charitable, and I think in some respects is unfair, but that's if you listen to critics' reviews, you've got your own problems. But I, I thought there were... I thought the place was pretty much full. Now, the Journal Sentinel is saying they think there was only about 12,000 people there. Sure seemed to me like there were more than 12,000. But, but regardless, it, it was, it was a well-attended sort of thing. And this is, the, the big question is, okay, how, how are people going to deal with, you know, having to prove that you are, you're in fact vaccinated to get in? And is that going to cause long lines? And the answer is, the answer is no. Um, now we came a little bit later on. We, we didn't go to see the first act, but I, I will tell you, you know, going, going through the lines, there were no problems. I talked to, uh, a couple of the security people that were there checking vax cards and things like that. And I, I, that was my question. I said, well, you know, was it, was it a long delay to get in? And they said, no, people, people were ready. You, you don't need to have your actual vaccination card. There's other things you can use. And as a matter of fact, I, I choose not to carry my vaccination card because what happens if it gets lost or, you know, whatever. I mean, just like I wouldn't carry my Social Security card in my wallet, I choose not to carry my vaccination card in my wallet. But what I do have is I've got a... I've got a photo of it on my phone. I, so I, and, and that, my, my wife's card, it's on the phone. In addition to that, um, I, again, if you, if, if you have a, a healthcare provider, like for example, Freighter is mine, you know, you can go to the Freighter website and you can download. They've got a record, even though I wasn't, uh, vaccinated through Freighter, they, they've got a record of, of this. And so I've got a hard copy of that that I carry around in my wallet. So I've got a hard copy that you could show somebody. But last night they, they took, they took the pictures on the phone. You know, you've got this, this is my phone. This is where I am. And you were able to get in and they were very, very good about doing this. And is it a foolproof system? Them, well, well, no, they're not going to stop everybody and make them show four forms of identification. But I think in general, it, it accomplished what they were trying to accomplish. And I think that, you know, the bottom line of this was it was efficient. Um, if you are worried that or if there is this concern from people that, oh, nobody's going to go to Summerfest because of this. That certainly wasn't my experience last night. You had a ton of people that were going in and they, they were willing to do it. Will this adversely affect Summerfest to some extent? Well, well, probably, but it was not a big deal last night. And that's just kind of my, my experience from going through this. It was not a big deal. It did not slow anything down. And I, I think the crowd just enjoyed it. The other thing was, and one of the other reasons I, I wanted to go to the show, other than the fact that I got to hang out with some of my friends, was the I wanted to see the newly redone amphitheater. I had not been in the American Family Amphitheater since they had done the improvements, and um, it's very, very nice. There, there's no question about it. They've made it a lot more what I would describe as, as fan-friendly. The concourses are wider. That The traffic flow is is better. Um, I just, I, I mean, it's, it's clearly a series of upgrades. And, and that's just what the average fans can see. My guess is behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff that's going on as well. But it, it was, it was a very, very pleasant experience. And I guess the bottom line is, if you are concerned about going to Summerfest, in the next couple of weeks because, oh, it's going to be too much of a hassle and I'm vaccinated, but I, I, and there's going to be these long lines to get in and stuff. That was not what my experience was last night. I, I think that they're, and I'm sure they're still working out some of the bugs with the system and stuff, but it was, it was not a problem last night and it was a fun time, even though for the first time in probably 50 years of going to concerts, I didn't know a single song from Maroon 5, which isn't to say that it wasn't an entertaining show because it was just, there wasn't anything I could sing along to. Okay. 
Okay, let's take a quick break again. We're waiting remarks from waiting remarks from the President of the United States on Afghanistan. If he's not ready to go, well, we've got a lot of stuff to start the program off. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, texter saying, Jeff, were you wearing a face covering for the concert, and were there others? My answer is, um, no, I was not wearing a, a face covering. Now, the, this is, I, I was outdoors the whole time. I, I wasn't, with one minor exception, I, I was not indoors at all. So, no, I, I was not wearing a mask for the concert. Were there others? The employees, as I recall, were all wearing masks. I, I... I mean, okay, so there's there's thousands and thousands of people there, so I, I can't speak in absolutes. I did not see many concert goers wearing masks, uh, coming in, you know, leaving, and I, I did not see many concert goers wearing masks. But again, we're talking at Summerfest, where I was, it's an outdoor venue. So uh, to answer the texter's question, were you wearing a face covering? No. Were there others um, in general? Uh, no. So that's it. Okay, let's... Let's see. The the cancel culture claims another victim. Do you know who Mike Richards is? My, my guess is up until, well, a couple months ago, almost nobody had heard of Mike Richards. Mike Richards is the executive producer of, of Jeopardy. And Mike Richards was named within the last like week or so to be the permanent host replacement for the late Alex Trebek. And you know, he had a tryout. Lots of people had tryouts, including Aaron Rodgers, but but Mike Richards was the one who who happened to stick. Now Mike Richards, his career has generally been behind the camera. Before he worked as the producer for Jeopardy, he worked on the prices right. You know, remember that game show and you know, Bob Barker was the longtime host of that. And now um, I think Drew Carey hosts The Price of Right is Price is Right. But he was he was a behind the scenes sort of guy. But he was elevated to become the host of of Jeopardy. Um, the I think that, you know, the decision to, to elevate him, uh, everybody's going to complain about everything. You know, you can't complain. You, you know, you can't please everybody. And people all feel invested in shows that they're that they watch like Jeopardy and things like that. So there were some people that liked the choice. There were some people that didn't. Well, regardless of how you felt about Mike Richards, he's now history. Um, he has announced today that he is stepping down as the host of Jeopardy. All right. So the question is, what what happened? Why did why did he have to step down? And here's where it gets really interesting. Uh, back in well, I'm looking at the story right now. Back in 2013, when he worked for The Price Is Right, he was tasked with hosting a podcast called The Random Show, not R-A-N-D-O-M, but Random, R-A-N-D-U-M-B Show. Now, he was a producer, but so that they said to him, look, here, here's what we want you to do. We, we want you to host a podcast, and we want this podcast to be a, 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 an irreverent, behind-the-scenes look at The Price is Right. Okay, and and this is a podcast. Now, keep in mind, this is before the Me Too movement. This is seven or eight years ago. And 
they they wanted it to be edgy, they wanted it to be funny, they wanted it to be, I think, arguably politically correct, incorrect. They, they said, okay, look, we, we want you to go and, and do do this kind of show. And it's a podcast. So so he, he does. And what after he got named, what happened as the host of Jeopardy, people went back and found this podcast between 2013 and 2014. And he did multiple shows. But they found, for example, you know, a segment where his co-host and former assistant, Beth Triffin discussed working as a model on the show, and he dubbed her, his phrase was, quote, a booth hoe, um, you know, and a booth statute. So, I mean, he was making arguably demeaning things to her, and, but, you know, it was in the, it was in the, the interplay between the two of them. In another episode, he discusses a photo of her and her friends calling her friends really frumpy and overweight and saying they all look terrible in the picture. They all look fat and they do not look good. Okay, so you, you've got you've got a handful of these remarks which are inappropriate. He's trying to be funny. He's trying to be irreverent, and and obviously he, he's kind of failing in this. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to do a shtick on his podcast. I don't know, kind of like some of the more aggressive comedians are doing, sort of like the the shtick that Howard Stern does on his radio show. You know, where you say some of these things that are. You know, in, inappropriate. Um, what did he say about Jeff Probst, you know, the guy that hosts Survivor? He says, Jeff Probst had a daytime talk show, which I was cheering for because I like, you know, the average white guy host. I cheer for him to succeed because I feel like through his success, I could have some success um, hosting. Okay, so, you know, he's... He's done. He, he makes a reference to again skin color. I'm pulling for Jeff Host because he's a white guy, and it, a lot of it is is tongue in cheek. But you know, you look at it on the printed page, or you hear it, and you go, "Huh, kind of, sort of inappropriate." But anyhow, that's what is. That's what the job was. It's like do some edgy, fun sort of podcast, and I say fun in quotation marks. But you know, you you want to do that. You know, the thing I thought of right away is is Jimmy Kimmel who is now the, the late-night host on ABC. If if you will remember back in time, Jimmy Kimmel started out on Comedy Central doing a show called The, the Man Show, which was, together with Adam Carolla, this was about as politically incorrect and as inappropriate as, as you could be. You know, they they had... You know, dancers that came out and were, you know, semi-naked and they, it was like one, one bad skit after another. But, you know, it, it didn't stop Jimmy Kimmel's career and Jimmy Kimmel is going on and he's a successful host. But now, because this stuff from seven, eight, nine years ago has surfaced, it's like, okay, well, we can't have Mike Richards as the host of Jeopardy. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is he being treated fairly? I, I mean, his, his, yes, if you look at some of the things he says on this podcast, all right, Eight years ago, yeah, by today's standards, kind of inappropriate. But a lot of it was tongue-in-cheek, and his mission was to be inappropriate. That's kind of what they wanted from him. So he goes out and he does this, and now he's being canceled seven or eight years later. They say, okay, because of some of the things that you said on this podcast where you're supposed to be, I don't know, sort of pushing the line, now you can't host Jeopardy. Is that right? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, um, the President was supposed to speak about 25 minutes ago about Afghanistan. Um, we are awaiting his comments. All right. I, I could care less who, who the host of, of Jeopardy is. And I don't know this Mike Richards from Adam. But I do think that this is kind of interesting. And another example of the counter, counter the cancel culture that's there. And I understand that some of you who hear this are perfect. And, you know, you, you've you've never done anything inappropriate in your life. And, of course, anybody who does, you're the first to jump on and say, well, they need to be fired. They can't have their job. This this is a really interesting thing because the guy was hired to do this podcast, sort of an aggressive kind of over-the-top podcast back in 2013 and 2014 where he, you know, mocked a couple women because of their weight and things like that and comments that I don't think, candidly think were funny. But at the same time, this is it was like, be edgy, go do this. And now seven or eight years later, he's being told, well, because you, you were edgy, because you did this, um, even though nobody complained at the time, now seven or eight years later, we've decided that you can't be the host of Jeopardy because you said these things. And I I do kind of wonder what what the standards are, and a number of you remember the the Man Show on on Comedy, you know, Central. Jeff, so if Richards is targeted, then why are Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla not canceled because of their, by contemporary standards, totally inappropriate female demeaning comments from the Man Show years ago? Which is it's it's absolutely a fair question. I mean, then why is this going to be singular? Why is Jimmy Kimmel still on the air? What? Why are we tolerating that? Because because I will guarantee you the stuff that they did on a regular basis, on a nightly basis on the man show, is a lot more offensive, a lot more aggressive than the remarks that Mike Richards made on this stupid podcast where he was tasked again with, with here, we, we want you to be irreverent. We want you to be funny. And I'm not saying that the remarks were always inappropriate, were appropriate. Of course not. But we're, we're now going back and saying, hey, seven or eight years ago, you got hired to do this. You know, you did this particular job, but now we're going to judge you by the things that they are. Jeff, I would like to know who these perfect people are that are so offended all the time. My guess is that they have done and said far worse. Well, I don't know. Some of the texters are like, oh, I can't believe you're defending the guy. I'm not defending the remarks the guy makes. I'm just saying that at some point in time, you know, I, I don't know how how long does the, the cancel culture work? And are we really, do we advance society? Do we advance the Me Too movement? Do we advance that stuff by saying, hey, we're going to go back and we're going to find something you said 10 years ago, and we're going to use that as a basis for saying, you know, you can't be promoted or you can't do this this new job. I, I'm just telling you, maybe it makes some people feel good if that's the attitude. But if this is the type of thing that makes you feel good, here, we've got another, you know, a pelt a skin that we put up on the wall here we we've got this we we've we've just taken down mike richards if that makes you feel good maybe you should be analyzing i don't know you know what what's going on in your life welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj let's start this segment while we're awaiting president biden who's 35 minutes late for his address let's let's start this segment with a brief history lesson wisconsin became a state in 1848, before Wisconsin was a state, it was a territory. And there were a number of, of cities that developed in the territory. Madison became a city in 1836, 12 years before Wisconsin became a state. The, the, the history of Madison is it was founded by a former federal district judge named James Dwayne Doty. 
And the name, what, what, okay, where, why did they decide the name Madison? Well, it was named for President James Madison, who was the fourth president of the United States, um, who, who had died, um, that, that summer, died in like 1836 or something like that. So in honor of James Madison, they, they named, they named the city of Madison. Okay, so that, that's the deal. And that's why they call it Madison to this day. Which brings me to, again, the cancel culture I have in my story. I hands a story. Fifteen choices remain for James Madison Memorial High School's new name. There is a high school in Madison, Wisconsin, named James Madison Memorial High School. Right. And of course, this is in Madison, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, the city, which is named after former President James Madison as well. The school board um, in Madison has decided that we can no longer allow the high school to be named after President James Madison. And so the story is about this committee meeting and they're choosing the different name. They're trying to decide what what names should we have for Madison Memorial High School because, well, we can't have Madison anymore. Now, you might say, why do we, why can't we have James Madison? Well, for example, um, this is what they describe it. James Madison, he, he, he owned slaves. As, as, as many of our founding fathers did, they owned slaves. Madison was a person that benefited off the exploitation of black bodies, and those who embarked in such acts of racism should have no influence in today's culture, one of the people pushing to rename the school. Expecting black students to attend a high school named after a slave owner is anti-black. That's the, the argument. So now they're looking at different names, including, um, well, Bruce Dahman Memorial High School, Darlene Hancock Memorial High School, Ruth Bader Ginsburg Memorial, uh, Velvea Phillips Memorial High School, Maria Monroe Cameron High School. It goes on and on and, and on. So, but we, we can't, we cannot have James Madison. Interestingly, some of the uh, suggestions that they, they threw out were things like woke high school. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to do. No, we, we can't have, you know, woke woke high school there. But the, but the bottom line is they're getting rid of, of James Madison Memorial High School. The name can't be there because the name is racist. It is offensive. All right. I, I then I raise this issue. If it is offensive and racist to have James Madison Memorial High School, which is named after the fourth president of the United States, and, and I say this seriously, I, what, what, what do we do? How, how in the world can the people who live in Madison live with themselves by living in a city called Madison? Isn't it time to then have a broader discussion if this is going to be racist and inappropriate for Mad- James Madison Memorial High School? And if we all agree that the city of Madison is named after James Madison, shouldn't shouldn't this start with Tony Evers? I mean, isn't this where this should be? We've got to rename Madison. Let's call it Fred. Let's call it Frank. I, I kind of like Fred because, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's some Fred that's deserving of this. But how far do you carry the cancel culture? 
with this situation. You know, you have the fourth president of the United States who did a lot of really great things. And yes, right, he was a product of his time. And everybody understands that slavery was the original sin when it comes to the United States of America. But does that now mean that you're not allowed to have a high school named after him? And if so, what is, in fact, the logical conclusion of this? And I I raise this question seriously. If you can't have James Madison Memorial High School in Madison, how can we call it Madison? I mean, isn't that what the dialogue should be? Because it seems to me it's got to be all or nothing. It's got to be, look, if this is so racist, how can anybody live here? How can we have the University of Wisconsin at Madison? Wouldn't we be better off saying, hey, um, I, I'm, I'm not going to school in Madison anymore because I, I'm offended by this. I'm going to go to school in Fred. You know, it's the University of Wisconsin, Fred. I live in Fred, Wisconsin. If, if you can't have the high school name James Madison, how can you have the community name James Madison? And I, I throw this out seriously. For, for all the, the, and of course this is an overwhelmingly liberal community dominated by Democrats, how can you tolerate this? You know, we, we've already seen, you know, every year that the Democratic Party used to have its, um, you know, Jefferson Day dinners. Well, well, now they can't have the Jefferson Day dinners anymore because, you know, Jefferson is also persona non grata because he was a slave owner at a certain point in time. But if we're going to cancel, if we're going to cancel the founding fathers, okay, that, that's all well and good, but don't we have to go ahead and cancel them? And doesn't that mean that we should start immediately trying to figure out what name we are going to come up with the state capital? Because how can we honor, if we can't put his name on a high school, how can we put it on the capital of the state? I ask. Eh, semi-tongue-in-cheek, but you understand the point. You know, <laughs> at what point in time do we say, you know, all right, we're, we're, why draw the line? Why have the community named Madison if you can't have the high school named Madison? Shouldn't that be even more offensive? I ask. For me, I'm casting my vote. Get rid of Madison. Let's call it Fred. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We are still waiting, as we have been for the last 47 minutes, for the president to address the country on Afghanistan. See, I, I think there's some traction looking at some of our texts. I, if, if you can't have James Madison Memorial High School in Madison, Wisconsin, because James Madison was this horrible slave owner. This is the fourth president of the United States. He, he's this horrible slave owner, and it is an insult to um, racial minorities to have a high school named after him. Well, how, I'm serious. How can the state capital which is also named after James Madison. How can how can we allow that to happen? Where where is everybody that's woke? Where where is the outrage about this? And so I think that's what we need to do. We need to start our own little petition drive, figuring out how we are going to rename the capital and what we should name it. I, for me, I I think Fred. You know, so you don't say, hey, I'm, uh, you know, if your if your daughter or granddaughter is going to go to the University of Wisconsin Madison, it's like, hey, I'm I'm going to the University of Fred, University of Wisconsin at Fred. You know, I, that's. I'm willing to open up other ideas, but I, I think, you know, you know, maybe we should call it, you know, or Bob, if you don't like Fred, or if, if you want to be, I, I don't know, if you if you want to be diverse, we can say it's the University of Jill, what, whatever it is, but how can it continue to be Madison? And for all the liberals that live in Dane County, how can you live with yourself that you live in an area where the principal community is named after this awful, terrible, horrible, slave-owning president who passed away in 1837. 
Just asking. All right, here's the headline, Journal Sentinel. These stories just do not go away. Two teens arrested in connection with a car theft at Kia dealership after a high-speed pursuit and crash. This is Glendale. Glendale officers arrested two teenagers after a theft at a car dealership that led to a high-speed chase and crash Wednesday morning. Now, there's a lot of elements of this story. Okay, we have the president. The President of the United States is coming out. Here's his remarks. Secretary Austin, National Security Advisor Sullivan, and other members of the National Security Leadership Team, uh, the Situation Room, uh, to discuss our ongoing efforts to evacuate American citizens, third country civilians, Afghan allies, and vulnerable Afghans. And I want to provide the American people with a brief update on the situation in Afghanistan. Since I spoke to you on Monday, we've made significant progress. We've secured the airport, enabling flights to resume, not just military flights, but civilian charters and other, from other countries, and the NGOs taking out uh, civilians and vulnerable, Afghan, uh, uh, vulnerable Afghanis. And now we have almost 6,000 troops on the ground, including the 82nd Airborne, providing runway security, the Army 10th Mountain Division standing guard around the airport, and the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit assisting the civilian departure. This is one of the largest, most difficult airlifts in history, and the only country in the world capable of projecting this much power on the far side of the world with this degree of precision is the United States of America. We've already evacuated more than 18,000 people since July and approximately 13,000 since our military lift began on August the 14th. Thousands more have been evacuated on private charter flights facilitated by the U.S. government. These numbers include American citizens and permanent residents, as well as their families. It includes SIV applicants and their families, those Afghans who have worked alongside us, served alongside of us, gone into combat with us and provided invaluable assistance to us, such as translators and interpreters. The United States stands by its commitment that we've made to these people and includes other vulnerable Afghans, such as women leaders and journalists. In fact, working in close coordination with the management of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, we have successfully evacuated all 204 of their employees in Afghanistan on U.S. military aircraft earlier this week. We've established the flow of flights, and we've increased the number of people we're moving out of the country. We paused flights in Kabul a few hours this morning to make sure we could process the arriving evacuees at the transit points. But our commander in Kabul has already given the order for outbound flights to resume. Even with the pause, We've moved out 5,700 evacuees yesterday, and we're working on a variety uh, to verify that number of Americans are still in country as we work on this, because we don't have the exact number of people who are uh, Americans are there, and those who may have come home to the United States. We want to get a strong number as to exactly how many people are there, how many American citizens, and where they are. Just yesterday, among the many Americans we evacuated, there were 169 Americans who over the, we got over the wall into the airport using military assets. We're also facilitating flights for our allies and our partners and working in close operational coordination with NATO on this evacuation. 
For example, we provided overwatch for the French convoy bringing hundreds of their people from the French embassy to the airport. These operations are, are going to continue over the coming days before we complete our drawdown. We're going to do everything, everything that we can to provide safe evacuation for our Afghan allies, partners, and Afghans who, 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 who might be targeted if the, because of their association with the United States. But let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. But make no mistake, this evacuation mission is dangerous. It involves risks to our armed forces, and it's being conducted under difficult circumstances. I cannot promise what the final outcome will be, or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. But as Commander-in-Chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary. And as an American, I offer my gratitude to the brave men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces are carrying out this mission. They're incredible. As we continue to work the logistics of evacuation, we're in constant contact with the Taliban, working to ensure civilians have safe passage to the airport. We are particularly focused on our engagements on making sure every American who wants to leave can get to the airport. Where we have been seeing challenges with Americans for, for Americans, we have thus far been able to resolve them. We've been able, we've made, look, and we, we've, we've made clear to the Taliban that any attack, any attack on our forces or disruption of our operations at the airport will be met with swift and forceful response. We're also keeping a close watch on any potential terrorist threat at or around the airport, including from the ISIS affiliates in Afghanistan who were released from prison when the prisons were emptied. And because they are, by the way, and make everybody understand that the, the ISIS in Afghanistan are this, have been the sworn enemy of the Taliban. I've said all along, we're going to retain a laser focus on our counterterrorism mission, working in close coordination with our allies and our partners, and all those who have an interest in ensuring stability in the region. Secretary Blinken is with me today, met this morning with our NATO allies in consultation about the way forward so that Afghanistan cannot be used as a f in the future as a terrorist base of attack to attack the United States or our allies. For 20 years, Afghanistan has been a joint effort with our NATO allies. We went in together and we're leaving together. And now we're working together to bring our people and our Afghan partners to safety. In the past few days, I've also spoken directly with the British Prime Minister, Mr. Johnson, Chancellor Merkel of Germany, and President Macron of France. We all agreed that we should convene, and we will convene, the G7 meeting next week, a group of the world's leading democracies, so that together we can coordinate our mutual approach, our united approach on Afghanistan and moving forward. We are united with our closest partners to execute the mission at hand. We've also discussed the need to work with the international community to provide humanitarian assistance, such as food aid and medical care for refugees who have crossed into neighboring countries to escape the Taliban, and to bring international pressure on the Taliban with respect 
to the treatment of Afghan, Afghan people overall, but including Afghan, particularly women and girls. The past week has been heartbreaking. We've seen gut-wrenching images of panicked people acting out of sheer desperation. You know, it's completely understandable. They're frightened. They're sad, uncertain what happens next. I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us can see these pictures and not feel that pain on a human level. Now we have a mission, a mission to complete in Afghanistan. It's an incredibly difficult and dangerous operation for our military. We have almost 6,000 of America's finest fighting men and women in, at the Kabul airport. And we're putting their lives on the line, and they're doing it in a dangerous place to save other Americans, our Afghan allies, and citizens of our, our, our allies who went in with us. You know, I, I, talk, I talk to our commanders on the ground there every single day, as I just did a few hours, an hour or so ago. And I made it clear to them that we'll get them whatever they need to do the job. They're performing to the highest standard under extraordinarily difficult and dynamic circumstances. Our NATO allies are strongly standing with us, their troops keeping sentry alongside ours in Kabul, as is the case whenever I deploy our troops into harm's way. I take that responsibility seriously. I carry that burden every day just as I did when I was vice president and my son was deployed to Iraq for a year. There'll be plenty of time to criticize and second-guess when this operation is over. But now, now, I'm focused on getting this job done. I would ask every American to join me in praying for the women and men risking their lives on the ground in the service of our nation. As events evolve over the coming days, my team and I will continue to share the information and update the American people on exactly where things are. We'll use every resource necessary to carry out the mission at hand and bring to safety American citizens and our Afghan allies. This is our focus now. And when this is finished, we will complete our military withdrawal and finally bring to an end 20 years of American military action in Afghanistan. Thank you. May God bless you, our troops, and our diplomats, and all those serving in harm's way. And now I'll take questions. AP, Zeke Miller. Afghanistan, but you also promised not to, to help to bring out those who helped America in its war effort. We've seen these heart-wrenching images at the Kabul airport of trying to get there, say nothing of the people who can't get to that airport. You made the commitment to get American troops out, uh, to get, uh, get American citizens out. Will you make the same commitment to those who assisted in the American war effort over the last 20 years, number one? And then number two, what is your message to the America's partners around the world who have criticized not the withdrawal, but the conduct of that withdrawal and made, it, made them question America's credibility on the world stage. I have seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. I've spoken with our NATO allies. We've spoken with NATO allies, the, the Secretary of State. Our national security advisor has been in contact with his counterparts throughout the world and our allies, as has the general, our, our, excuse me, I keep calling him a general, but my Secretary of Defense. 
The fact of the matter is, I have not seen that. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite I've gotten. The exact opposite thing is we're acting with dispatch. We're acting, committing to what we said we would do. Look, let's put this thing in perspective here. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone? We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan as well as, as well as getting Osama bin Laden. And we did. Imagine, just imagine, if that attack, if bin Laden had decided with al-Qaeda to launch an attack from Yemen, would we ever gone to Afghanistan? Would there ever be any reason we'd be in Afghanistan? Controlled by the Taliban? What is the national interest of the United States in that circumstance? We went and did the mission. You've known my position for a long, long time. It's time to end this war. The estimates of the cost of this war over the last 20 years range from a minimum of $1 trillion to a think tank at one of the universities saying $2 trillion. That's somewhere between $150 million a day and $300 million a day. The threat from terrorism has metastasized. There's a greater danger from ISIS and, 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 and al-Qaeda and all these affiliates in other countries by far than there is from Afghanistan. And we're going to retain an over-the-horizon capability that if they were to come back to be able to take them out, surgically move. So this is, this is where we should be. This is about America leading the world. And all our allies have agreed with that. And by the way, before I made this decision, I was at the G7 as well as met with our NATO partners. And I told them all, every one of them knew and agreed with the decision I made to end, end, jointly end our involvement in Afghanistan. The first part of your question was, I can't remember now. Would you commit to the same commitment? Would you make the same commitment to bring out Afghans who assisted in the war effort? Yes, yes, we're making the same commitment. There's no one more important than bringing American citizens out. I acknowledge that. But they're equally important almost as all those who those SIVs, we call them, who in fact helped us. They were translators. They went into battle with us. They were part of the operation. As well as, we're also trying to get out as many NGOs, uh, non-government organizations, women's organizations, etc. We're doing all we can. In the meantime, uh, Secretary Blinken and I am going to be working with our allies to see to it that we can bring international pressure on the Taliban to be, they're looking to gain some legitimacy. They're going to have to figure out how they're going to maintain that country. And there's going to be harsh conditions, we're, strong conditions we're going to apply, and it will depend on whether they get help based on whether or not how and well they treat women and girls, how they treat their citizens. So this is just beginning on that score. They passed the 31st to make that happen, to bring all the Americans out, to bring those SIVs out. I think we can get it done by then, but we're going to make that judgment as we go. Now, uh, Justin Sink of Bloomberg. Thanks, Mr. President. Um, you just said that you would keep a laser focus on counterterrorism efforts, and that you don't see as great of a threat of terrorism from Afghanistan uh, as other parts of the world. But if you and your administration so badly misassessed how quickly the Taliban would sweep through Afghanistan, and we no longer have an embassy there, from which to run intelligence operations, how can you at all be confident 
of your assessment of the risk of terrorism and the ability of the U.S. to conduct over-the-horizon missions to keep it in check. Can you tell Americans that they're safe and will remain safe from terror attacks in Afghanistan? I think you're comparing apples and oranges. One question was whether or not the Afghan forces we trained up would stay and fight in their own civil war they had going on. No one, I shouldn't say no one, the consensus was that it was highly unlikely that in 11 days they'd collapse and fall and the leader of Afghanistan would flee the country. That's a very different question than whether or not there is the ability to observe whether or not large groups of terrorists begin to accumulate in a particular area in Afghanistan to plot against the United States of America. That's why we retained an over-the-horizon capability to go in and do something about that if that occurs, if that occurs. But in the meantime, we know what's happened around the world. We know what's happening in terms of what's going on in other countries where there is a significant rise of terrorist organizations in the Middle East, in East Africa, and other places. And so the bottom line is we have to do, we're dealing with those terrorist threats from other parts of the world and failed states without permanent military, without, without permanent military presence there. We have to do the same in Afghanistan. Sir, just on that initial assessment, we, we learned uh, over the last 24 hours that there was a dissent cable from the State Department. Sure. Uh, saying that the Taliban would come faster uh, through Afghanistan. Can you say why, after that cable was issued, the U.S. didn't do more to get Americans got out? all kinds of cables, all kinds of advice. If you notice, it ranged from this group saying that they didn't say it'd fall when it would fall, when it did fall, but saying that it would fall to others saying it wouldn't happen for a long time and they'd be able to sustain themselves through the end of the year. I made the decision. The buck stops with me. I took the consensus opinion. The consensus opinion was that, in fact, it would not occur if it occurred until later in the year. So it was my decision. And now my, I got, my next uh, is uh, Stephanie Ramos, ABC. Thank you, Mr. President. Two questions for you. The military has secured the airport, as you mentioned, but will you sign off on sending U.S. troops into Kabul to evacuate Americans who haven't been able to get to the airport safely? We have no indication that they haven't been able to get in Kabul through the airport. We've made an agreement with the, with the Taliban thus far. They've allowed them to go through. It's in their interest for them to go through. So we know of no circumstance where American citizens are carrying an American passport are trying to get through to the airport, but we will do whatever needs to be done to see to it they get to the airport. And Thank one more, you. Mr. President. Uh, last month, my colleague Martha Raditz interviewed Abdul, an interpreter who was on the front lines with U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Overnight, we received a photo of Taliban militants coming to the door of his home, literally hunting him down. Thankfully, he was able to escape, but he is obviously still in mortal danger. What would be your message to Abdul, his wife, and his three young daughters? We want you to be able to get to the airport, contact us. We'll see whatever we can do to get you there. We've got to get you out. We are committed to deal with you, your wife, and your child to get all three of you out of Afghanistan. That's the commitment. 
Thank you, sir. Meredith Lee of PBS NewsHour. You mentioned just now using every resource available for evacuations. Why haven't you ordered the military to expand the security perimeter around the Kabul airport? Do you have any plans to do so, given that will likely require more U.S. troops? And are you considering rescue operations to recover Americans and Afghan allies stuck behind Taliban checkpoints? The last answer is yes to the last question. We're considering every, op every opportunity and every means by which we could get folks to the airport. That's number one. Number two, the reason why we have not gone out and started and set up a perimeter way outside the airport in Kabul is that it's likely to draw an awful lot of uh, unintended consequences in terms of people who, in fact, uh, are not part of the Taliban. We've been in constant contact with the Taliban leadership on the ground in, in Kabul as well as the Taliban leadership at Daho. And we've been coordinating what we we're doing. That's why we were able, for example, how we got all of our embassy personnel out, how we got everyone out of the embassy safely. That was the distance. That's how we helped get the French out and out of their embassy. So the question remains, there will be judgments made on the ground by the military commanders at the moment and that I cannot second-guess each of those judgments to be made. But the idea of, again, let me, let me, let me get back to the fundamental point I, I made at the outset. When the decision was made by me that, and it was made some time ago, and I ran four presidents saying I wanted to get us out of Afghanistan, one of the things that um, is a reality is people now say to me and to others, and so many of you say it on air, that why did we have to move because no Americans are being attacked? Why did we withdraw those, why, why did we agree to withdraw 2,500 troops? No Americans are being attacked. As I said before, the reason they weren't being attacked was part of an agreement that Trump had made a year earlier. We will leave by May 1st, he said, as long as there's no attack on Americans in that year period. Number one. Number two, the Taliban was taking large swaths of the countryside, north and south. None of the major areas, none of the major uh, uh, points of uh, the, the capitals of each of these provinces. But they were all over, the, all over the country. And the idea that if I had said on May the 2nd or 3rd, we are not leaving, we are staying, does anybody truly believe that I would not have had to put in significantly more American forces, send your sons, your daughters, like my son was sent to Iraq, to maybe die? And for what? For what? So the only rational thing to do, in my view, was to set up and pre-position American forces for the purpose of evacuation and the aircraft to pre-position those ahead of time so that we would be able to begin the process of evacuation of American citizens, SIVs, and others who helped us. The last point I'll make is this. Look, um, 
If we had decided 15 years ago to leave Afghanistan, it would have been really difficult. If we decided five years ago, if we start, if we continued the war for another decade and tried to leave, there's no way in which you'd be able to leave Afghanistan without there being some of what you're seeing now. But what we've done so far is we've been able to get a large number of Americans out, all our personnel at the embassy out, and so on. And thank God, so far, knock on wood, we're in a different position. Scott uh, Detrow. Scott. Okay, at this point in time, we're going to move on. We're, we're going to continue to roll tape on the, the president's remarks, and if if there's any new ground that's covered, we'll certainly bring that to you. Let's take a very quick break, and then we come back. I'll give you some of my thoughts on what we've heard over the course of the last 25 minutes, and we'll we'll open up the phone lines to get your reactions to the president's remarks. Stick around. This is WTMJ Milwaukee. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I think there was a lot that we heard from the president in the last 25 minutes that he is going to end up regretting saying. I think there's stuff, as I was, as I was listening to this, I, I kept like circling back to 2009. And I remember President Obama when he was trying to sell the Affordable Care Act and he would say things like, all right, this is our promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you'll be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care care plan, period. No one will take it away no matter what. And we know that turned out to be as recognized, but of all places, PolitiFact, the, the, the lie of the year. Well, I, I was listening to the president when he said, any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. That, that sounds great. And I certainly hope he's able to pull that off. But I'm thinking, all right, that's a pretty big task. And then, to their credit, one of the reporters followed up and said, okay, you said Americans. Well, what about what about Afghanis uh, who have worked for the government? Will you make the same commitment to them? And he said, yes, I'm going to make the same commitment to them. Well, all right, I, I sincerely, and I mean this, I sincerely hope that he's able to, to you know, pull that off. But as you saw, one of the follow-up questions from the ABC reporter who says, hey, you know, we, we know somebody who went on camera and was talking about how they worked with us, and he's now being hunted down by the Taliban. Um, he, he is in hiding. They came looking for him. All right, I mean, I'm wondering here, all right, President Biden, what, what's going to happen, and how are you going to be able to, you know, keep that promise? Then he goes on to say, I've seen no question of our credibility on the world stage, To make which makes you wonder, who, who is he talking to? I mean, I, look, I'm just a radio talk show host, but in preparation for these shows, I, I, I'm following a lot of the international commentary, and I think it is pretty much unanimous that the way the U.S. handled this withdrawal has definitely affected our credibility, including the fact that, all right, you know, in what what is our promise in the future if the United States can botch something this badly? And again, Biden keeps coming back to the whole story of well, I, I said I was going to end the war, I was going to pull the troops out. That, that's that might be the narrative he wants to talk about, but everybody else is not talking about the narrative of, of pulling the troops out. It's the way that this 
was done that has created the huge problem. And then, um, you know, where the president, when they were asking him, okay, well, what about the the Afghanis who we made now a commitment to get out, but they, they can't get through the checkpoints? And what about the American citizens who might not be able to get through the checkpoints? You know, and his response is, well, we've made it clear to the Taliban that any attack, if any attack on our forces is going to be met with a forceful response. And nobody the follow up. But my question would be, well, what do you mean? We, we've already we've already pulled everybody out. We've made this commitment. Do you mean to say that if we get information that the Taliban has grabbed a bunch of, I don't know, Afghanis, Af- Afghanistan citizens who work with the government, we're we're going to we're going to use force to get them out? I mean, really? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think the, the remarks raised a lot more questions than they necessarily answered. And I think, you know, moving forward. Look, we all want this to go smoothly. I just, I never, none of us should ever be in a position of trying to root against the United States. Because this, this is a, it is a mess, in my opinion. It is a mess caused by this intemperate planning and really, really bad intelligence. Actually, I kind of like some of the reporter's questions because, you know, he he said, you know, Biden said, well, you know, we're we're confident that this this is you're not going to see a resurge of terrorism or anything like that. One of the reporters said, well, how can you trust your intelligence? This is the same intelligence who told you that they thought that the government would, you know, be able to exist for the for, for at least another, you know, X number of months. If they were that wrong on this, how can you be confident that it's not going to be a source of terrorism, which I thought was a really great question as well. But I understand President Biden wants to keep bringing this around to, well, I said I was going to pull out. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't should the American troops have been withdrawn. It's what should we have been doing over the course of the last six months, over the course of the last eight months to get the people that we want to get out Get them out. Give them the opportunities to do that so you do not have the chaos that exists now. And I understand the president wants to frame this in the terms of should we be in or out of Afghanistan. I think he he's missing the boat on what the real concern of th- this is, which is, you know, how how do we do it? And I think some of the things he said, if they're able to pull them off, go with God. I think that's great. But I think that you might be hearing Hearing some, those remarks might be coming back to haunt him later on if we're not able to deliver on some of the promises that he made. And given the fact that we haven't been able to deliver a lot of the other, you know, assertions and getting people out, I, I think he's setting himself up for a dramatic failure. Hope it doesn't happen. But I, I think this press conference, together with the images from earlier this week, may be defining moments of the Biden presidency. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. As we were talking about earlier, Summerfest 2021 starts in the very near future. To help you enjoy it, I have a four-pack of tickets to give away. 855-616-1620, caller number 10. 855-616-1620 to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller number 10 wins a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest 2021. As I mentioned, I was at the Maroon 5 show last night. The the new amphitheater is absolutely, or the newly remodeled amphitheater is absolutely spectacular. No question about it. Caller number 10. 855-616-1620. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
So I was just saying, last night we, we went to see the Maroon 5 show at Summerfest. Before that, we, we met three other couples, and we had dinner um, in the Third Ward. Ni- nice restaurant. And I, it, w- it was a wonderful restaurant. Enjoyed it. Always do. But I will tell you, in the back of my mind, my, my big question was, and we, we parked on the street about two blocks away from the restaurant. My big question was, gee, when I come out after this nice meal, is my car going to be here? And, and yes, it was. But that's not necessarily a ridiculous question. I just pulled up the most recent numbers, and the Milwaukee Police Department has an, an, a daily update on various categories of, of crime. And it's kind of interesting. And um, crime in general is, is up dramatically from two years ago and on a par with like record highs from last year. But the one number that's just up dramatically is is motor vehicle theft. This time last year, there were 2,338 cars. This is like year to date, 2020, 2,338 cars have been stolen. This year, get this, 6,565. 6,565 cars stolen. That translates approximately into about 29 cars a day, every day, stolen on the mean streets of Milwaukee. 29 cars, and that's bad weather, Sundays, doesn't matter. 29 cars on average. It's just a staggering number, and it's getting worse, not better. Two months ago, um, the two 30-day periods ago, it was 926. Now... 990 in the last 30 days as of as of yesterday almost a thousand cars in 30 days it's just it's staggering as and the fact is it continues it's not like you have a blip this month and so seriously if you park your car in milwaukee it's you know who knows what the odds are that you're going to be able to come out and find the, the car there which brings to mind this story that I was starting right before the president started to speak. Two teens were arrested in connection with a car theft at a Kia dealership. This is what the headline in the paper says, after a high-speed pursuit and crash. Glendale officers arrested two teenagers after reported theft at a car dealership that led to a high-speed chase and crash Wednesday morning, according to a news release from the Glendale Police Department. Officers responded to a report of a motor vehicle theft in progress at Lupient Kia, 6030 North Green Bay Avenue, about 730 a.m., 735 a.m. Okay, let's just let that one linger out there for a minute. It's 735 in the morning. And you have cars, a car being stolen off a lot. 735 in the morning. It's not 735 at night. It's not 4 o'clock, 4 a.m. It's 735 in the morning. This is, you know, how these people are starting their day. Uh, It gets better. Officers spotted the vehicle on Green Bay Avenue and pursued it as it fled south on Green Bay before they deployed stop sticks and deflated two of the vehicle's tires. The car lost control and crashed near West Capitol Drive. Okay, that is not that far from where I'm sitting now. Officers arrested the driver of the car. All right, now now here is here is my question. Um, think right now, just, just you're sitting there, whether you're in your automobile, you're at home, or you're at work, or wherever, and listening to this program. Drivers arrested the the driver of the car. This is a car that is stolen at seven thirty-five in the morning, and then led leading the police on a high-speed chase. How old 
do you think the driver of the car was? Now, don't answer. Just come up with your image of this. 7.35 in the morning, first thing, and this is, I, I and, unless this person's been out all night stealing cars, this is presumably the way they start their day off. Hey, you know, you might start your day off with a cup of coffee. Maybe you start it with, you know, a, a bagel. Uh-uh. This, this person decided to start their day off by stealing a car and leading the police on a high-speed chase. So think about how old you think the driver is. All right, so the officers arrested at the scene of the crash, the, the driver, and a second suspect um, who was in the, the car. So you've got the, these two. Now think, think about, okay, how old do you picture the second suspect? So the, these two people, and I've, I mean, I've given you a clue, they're teenagers, but the, these two people go, and this is how they start their day. They boost the cars. Okay, got this image, got an age in mind. You're thinking, okay, how old is the kid that's there? All right, well, here's the thing. Officers arrested the driver of the car. A 14-year-old boy at the scene of the crash, the second suspect was a 13-year-old boy. So you've got a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old. 7.35 in the morning. And by the way, as an aside, this is this is a busy Green Bay Road. If you don't know the uh, Green Bay Avenue is is a major thoroughfare uh, around here. And Capitol Drive is a major thoroughfare. This is 7.35 in the morning. So lots of people going to work. Lots of people, maybe you're taking your kids to school or whatever. And, of course, you've got another one of these situations where kids driving recklessly in stolen cars put everybody's life in danger. Now, in this case, thankfully, they didn't kill anybody, and they racked up the car, and the only people hurt were the driver of the car, and he wasn't even hurt that seriously. But, okay, so 7.35 in the morning, you've got these kids that are endangering lives. But but it's a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old. A 14-year-old and a 13-year-old, and this is how they start their day, going to a car dealership and boosting a car and then leading the cops on on a chase. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is there anything we can do to stop this? I I mean, I, I look at the huge number of cars that are being stolen, I mean, on average, 30 a day, all right? The, a large number of those are being stolen by juveniles. But this isn't even like 17-year-olds. This is 14- and 13-year-olds who are out, obviously, running the streets wild, no parental supervision, uh, you know, who knows? But, I mean, who? think back to when you were 14 and 13, all right? Uh, there's a lot of, on a summer day, there's maybe a lot of stuff that came to your mind. Hey, what am I going to do? It's a hot August day. Am I going to play baseball? Am I going to go to the pool? What am I going to try to do? Do I have to cut lawns and whatever? I'm willing to bet that it didn't occur to you that, hey, let's go out and boost a car off a car lot in Glendale at 7.35 in the morning. And yet, that is what these juvenile delinquents, these punks, these thugs, th- this is how they start their, their day. 855-616-1620. That is the accurate mortgage talk and text line. Obviously, the parents don't give a rat's rump. Let, let's let's just be honest here, because if you had parents that were involved and cared, the, the kids wouldn't be out at 735 in the morning stealing cars. Now, I don't know what their background is of these kids, but my guess is this is not their first time at the rodeo. We'll never find out because we protect the thugs and we don't make their juvenile records public. But my guess is you just don't wake up one you know Thursday morning 
thing and decide, hey, today's the day I'm going to go out first thing in the morning and steal a car after, out of, off of a car lot and lead the cops on a high-speed chase. Clearly, I would assume that these kids have been doing this again. But larger point, what is going on, and is there really anything that you can do with this? Because if the parents don't care, and the kids don't care, and the authorities well, they, they catch them because they, they re- you know, they wreck the car. But if all you do is send these kids off to, you know, juvenile court where they're probably going to be no processed or turned around and sent back to the same mother and father or grandmother and grandfather who can't control them or don't care to control them, is, is this an inevitable thing? Is this now the new normal that we have to live with just saying, hey, 735 in the morning, you're driving to work. Be prepared to look out for some 14 year old kid driving a stolen car who doesn't care if he kills you, doesn't care if he kills your wife, doesn't care if he kills your kids. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to take your calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, don't be too hard on the punks. They probably needed the car early in the morning to get to work by 8 a.m. Yeah, that's yeah, we're, we're we're running late for the job here. Let's steal the car and go on the high speed chase. No, I, 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 I doubt that the 14 and 13 year old who stole the car the other day and led the police on a high speed chase. I, I doubt seriously that they were headed to work. They were probably on a joy ride looking for another car that they could steal after that. OK, William in Heartland. William, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I wanted to say I'm a licensed professional counselor. I've studied a lot of uh, trauma, childhood outcomes, human development, and things like that. And a situation like what you're talking about is almost always the result of some kind of chronic neglect, abuse, whether it's emotional, physical, verbal, sexual. Um, I'm not saying that there's no accountability for these children, but this sort of thing is usually the result of problems at home. And it also includes uh, the lack of supervision from parents. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm sure the kids. I, I'm, I'm sure the kids are 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 a mess. My, I, I would tell you when I was 13 or 14 years old, my parents had instilled enough of a value system in me that I understood that you don't go out and, and steal cars or carjack people or, or do whatever. So somewhere along the line, these. 13 and 14 year olds, right, they, they, they do not have that value system that normal people have. I guess the question becomes, what, what, what do we do about it? Because I assume you would agree with me, William, that this, it's not, you cannot tolerate having 14 year olds engaging in this type of antisocial behavior. You're right. Um, and it's such a complicated question. Um, I don't really have the answer for that. But I think it goes to show that this is such a problem because of how cyclical it is. These children are likely going to grow up, and mm-hmm. they may neglect, abuse, mistreat their children as well. They might also have a lower socioeconomic status. They might live in neighborhoods where it's more common to do this sort of thing, and it just breeds future generational problems. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I, it's a really complicated issue. It is, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I was with you up until the, the last thing you said, though, the, the lower socioeconomic status. I Look, I I don't know about you. I I knew I have a, a lot of people in my life who grew up in grew up lower middle class or, or grew up in various stages of poverty who who understood 
that 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 but still grew up with with a a, a sense of values they I mean to, to me it's not an excuse just because you're lower middle class or you know socioeconomically challenged that's still not an excuse that you can go out and you can rob and steal and do things like that so i mean and and, and most people i think understand that but you have to have that value system and unfortunately the, these kids obviously don't Right. I don't want to make a blanket statement about those in a lower socioeconomic status. I know sometimes it's just kind of a predictor for higher likelihood of trauma, incarceration rates and things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, thanks for calling. Look, and I I, I understand it's it's a problem. And I'm I I am I I guess I I, I am of two minds of this. Uh, There is there's the immediate problem and then there's the bigger problem. The immediate problem is what do you do with a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old that lack a value system to know that they shouldn't be going out at 7.30 in the morning and stealing cars? And again, maybe I'll be completely wrong, but I, my guess is they have been in and out of the system before this, or at least they're just starting, starting that. So the, the first question is, what do you do with, with these children? And I will tell you, it's th- to send them back into the, the family situation, whatever that might be, that obviously isn't working. That that's not the answer, and, and that's why we we have to be use have a more liberal use of consequences, and and if that means sending kids off to I don't know Lincoln Hills or wherever it's going to be, yeah, we've got to do that because at one point in time. You cannot allow this stuff to keep going on because it will, in fact, escalate. It's going to go from stealing cars at the age of 14 to carjacking people at the age of 15 to doing other stuff. So finally, they they do something so serious that you end up having to warehouse them because that's what they've done. You've got to teach consequences early. So that's the first answer. And we, at least in my opinion, and we're unable to do that. I mean, look, I, I don't. I think it's fair to ask, okay, why why does a 14-year-old feel entitled to go steal cars at 7.35 in the morning? And and that is the bigger, broader picture about the, the screwed-up family structure, undoubtedly, and the parents who don't care or at least haven't been able to instill a value thing. And and I'll, I'll leave that to people that are smarter than me to figure that out if you can. But on an immediate level, my answer is we you, you, you've got to teach consequences to these people who are out there doing this and there's got to be consequences and it can't just be the don't do this again we've caught you and now we're going to send you back to mom and dad or mom or dad or like i was saying grandma or grandpa whoever's raising the kids who obviously have have failed miserably in teaching the children right and wrong and have failed miserably in instilling any sort of value sense and on top of that have no control i mean it's just i, I again i i understand that i i kind of link this whenever i hear these stories I think back to, gee, you know, how how did you spend your days? I grew up in Glendale. How did you spend your days in Glendale, Wisconsin, when you were 13 and 14 on an August day? And I got to tell you, it, it would not have occurred to me to get my buddy and to go over and, and steal some car off of one of those car lots. And yet that's precisely what these kids decided to, you know, do. Jeff, somebody says, charge the parents as party to a crime. Well, you know, legally, I don't know. The parents are going to say, "Well, I, you know, we we didn't know what he was doing, and you know, we we thought he was we we thought he was you know on his way to church or whatever. We had no idea that he was going to steal this stuff." It's tough 
to hold the parents accountable for this, but it is it is the underlying problem. And again, I f- figure out the overall societal stuff. That's good, but but let's let's get some punishment going on. I mean, twenty nine cars a day stolen in the city of Milwaukee. That is a mind blowing number. And you know, we don't hear about most of these things. You don't hear about most of the car thefts. You don't hear about the vast majority of chases. You know, the fact that you know you're driving down Capitol Drive and somebody driving a stolen car with no license plates passes you at 75 miles an hour uh, that and, and then gets away from the police or gets caught by the police that doesn't make the news the only time it makes the news is when they run through the red light hit and kill you know two people who have the right of way well then yeah then finally it gets into the news but this stuff happens on a daily basis in the city of Milwaukee. It is spreading out into the suburbs. Law-abiding citizens aren't safe, and people need to wake the hell up and start dealing with this. And if, if you don't think it's out of control, I mean, what was the number that I was just throwing around? How many how many cars that are stolen? 6,565 cars stolen already, and it's only August 20th. And by the way, those numbers don't take into account today. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Melissa, you did that story during the news about where you can go to try to print out proof that you've been vaccinated. We had like a dozen dozen hits on the text line. Oh, good. Well, well I guess... Well, I mean, like, it's bad that you lost your card. Or but... just wanting to... Yeah, th- yeah, there are a number of alternatives. Like I said last night, I, it, it, most places will take... if you. One of the first things I've done, I, I took a picture of the card and you put it on your phone and, and then what they encourage you to do is like you, I put it in a separate like folder on my phone mm-hmm. under the so notes thing. So you don't have thing. to search through right, all so your you don't photos. Have to search. So it's <laughs> right. So in the notes, there's a thing that says, you know, like Jeff's covid vaccination card and fran's covid vaccination card and you have it most places will take pictures is my understanding and then like i say in addition what what i did is once you've been vaccinated regardless where it is it's in a registry but also for example your Mm -hmm. your health provider has it as well so i was uh, freighted as my health provider and so I, I, you go to the freighter website to check stuff you know you log in and there's a thing I, i was able to actually print out not the card, but print out a piece of paper that, that's got the vaccination mm-hmm. history. So, and I, I care. I actually do carry that. I have that one for my wife and I. That's just in my that that paper is kind of crumbled up in my in my wallet. So, if for some reason there was a problem with the phone, you still have it because because candidly, I don't feel comfortable carrying my vaccination my vaccination card. card. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. I I used this analogy earlier, and somebody said, well, it's not the same as a Social Security card. It's not the same, but I, I wouldn't carry my Social Security card either, and it's the original document, so I, I, I don't carry that. And I think the COVID cards, they're they're stored in my house, you know, along yeah. with the passports well, and things like that. Well, depending on where you got your vaccination will depend on where you can get an update if you need like more documentation if you lost your card but the registry that has everybody in there if you went to Walgreens I've heard that you can go to Walgreens and get a card but not everybody did that a lot of people went to clinics to different places and you can't go back to those places to get an updated card oh and by the way you know what you should never do with your card what's that laminate it oh why is that well uh, because it may be, it's entirely possible that you're going to get a, a booster. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that's that, that's what they say. One of the big no-nos is don't 
don't laminate the card because then if you do get that booster, because what's going to happen is for, for most people when they get the boosters, mm-hmm. you just bring in your card and they'll just update it right right there. So, no, that's one of the big things. Don't laminate. Don't laminate the cards. That makes so, sense. Makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. So all, all these interesting things. This is such a 2021 problem. You know, you would have you <laughs> would have never two years ago, we would have never been thinking about discussing, gee, we're going to have these vaccination cards and how do you preserve them? That's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's move on. I have there. There are several rules of life, some of which are kind of fun, and some of which are are, are very real. And, and one of the ones I try to live by is that you should never love or hate something that can't love or hate you back. I mean, it, it's just it's it's generally speaking, it, it's sort of a waste of spirit to either love or hate inanimate objects. Now, having said that. When, when I first bought a house years and years ago, I just, we, we had a furnace that was just a piece of junk. And that the furnace, it went out all the time. I've told this story before. I swear the furnace knew when it was Christmas Eve. It, it knew when it was the 4th of July and it, it would constantly go out. And, and, you know, it just, I hated that furnace. But again, it's a waste of spirit because the furnace doesn't know that you hate it or love it. So, I mean, I, I think that you should reserve that for people. But nevertheless, I understand that we get emotionally attached to things. For example, the um, the house I used to live in, in Whitefish Bay, um, my late wife loved, loved, loved that house. She would say to me, Sometimes I, because as, as time went on, I was thinking maybe it's time to downsize, get to a house that has, it was, it was a hundred year old house, wonderful house, but it had maintenance things, constant maintenance stuff, and I'm not handy and all. And I, I kept thinking, okay, maybe it's time to downsize. And, and, and my late wife would say things like, you know, I, I had a dream last night that we sold the house and I was so unhappy. I mean, she loved, she loved that house and, you know, was able to stay there for, for her entire life. But, but, but she, she loved it. All right, so after after she passed, um, I made the decision. My, my friend and I were getting married and things like that. And this, you know, we we were we, we were going to buy a new house, and so we we're going to get a new place to live and things like that. So we put my house on the market, but but still, like I say, even though I mean I like the house, I love the neighborhood, love the the neighbors and things like that. But it was time to sell. I didn't have the emotional attachment that my late wife did, but. At the same time, I knew how special it was to her. So anyways, we put the the house on the market. First people that come through and look at it make a very good offer on it. I mean, a, a very acceptable offer. But one, and we, we had other showings that were, were scheduled. This was a couple of years ago now. So it wasn't quite the red hot real estate market, but the first people that looked at it made a very, very decent offer. The other thing that they did is they wrote me one of these, they, they call them love letters. They, they wrote me like a two-page letter, and the letter was talked about how they really loved the house. They had a little boy, and I think they had another child on the way, and and they could really see this being their forever house. And they they talked about how you know we could picture like you know having breakfast in this particular area, and we could see we know exactly where we'd put the Christmas tree and things like that. And it was a very very nice letter, and and I admit. It kind of tugged on my heartstrings because I knew how attached my late wife was to the house. And and maybe this is silly, maybe it's naive, but you know, I thought I think she would she would have liked the fact that this house that she loved so much was going to go to a family who'd written me a letter suggesting that, that they they could love it as much 
as as we did in general or, or she did in particular and and I, I admit I, I was sitting there looking at this and like I say it, it's the, the offer was very much in the ballpark and if it had, if it had been a, a dramatically like a low ball offer or something the letter wouldn't have made any difference but I but the, the letter did kind of touch me and I, I thought again even understanding that you shouldn't get emotionally attached to, to inanimate things and stuff, I thought, you know, she, she'd like the fact that this was going to a family as opposed to, I, I don't know, could I have gotten a couple grand more by, like, waiting and seeing if, you know, other people looked at the house and made offers and, you know, maybe it was somebody that was going to be moving in to, uh, for, for Foxconn that might stay for a year or something like that and then turn it over. I, I So it was... At the end of the day, the offer was really, really good. I thought it was fair, and and so you know I, I ended up taking it. Um, but but the letter was a factor in this because again, I, you're supposed to have this completely unemotional thing, and I understand it's business. But I thought you know this is Sue would like this, so it, it was it was a factor in making the decision to sell. Now I bring this up because there's a series of stories out there, realtors are apparently now telling prospective buyers don't send these these love letters to people. Let me just read you one from a real estate source I'm looking at. Love letters belong in the hands of significant others, not home sellers, a growing number of realtors say. Ohio Realtors President Seth Task is the latest to come out against the letters, a tactic trick uh, traditionally used by potential home buyers as a means of forming a personal connection with sellers and gaining an edge on rival buyers. Task told News 5 Cleveland that he no longer welcomes love letters and encourages fellow realtors to reject them as well why well the the argument is that gee if um you if somebody gives you some information about their background and you act on it you might be liable to be sued for violating the fair housing act or something like that because you know you could be accused as a seller you you get this and you say oh this is nice this is going to some family or something like that and then somebody could turn around and sue you saying well you know this is this was illegal they took in illegal considerations in deciding to sell the house to this person as opposed to that person if they had multiple options our number 855-616-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line every once in a while i think you have to stand up and say you know i I understand everybody's afraid of litigation and lawsuits and things like that but it's sometimes there's sometimes you you gotta not allow yourself to be paralyzed over the fact that somebody somewhere somehow might decide to sue and candidly you know i i think i think these love letters i I think they work and i think it's a fair i I think it's a a fair thing to do because i know that I wanted this house, I wanted my old house, I wanted to go to some people that I thought would appreciate it because I thought that would make, it would have meant something to my late wife. And and so, yes, that letter they sent me was a factor at least. And of course, I again, it was they were the first people, so I mean, I didn't have competing offers or anything like that. But I found it, I, it was, you know, it's always a little bit traumatic to sell houses and stuff like that. And I thought selling this house that I had lived in for 30 years to people that I thought were going to appreciate it, I that made me feel a little bit better about the whole process. Okay, so 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you, if, if you're either from the perspective of a seller or a buyer, do you think there's anything wrong with reaching out to the prospective buyer 
and saying, hey, th- this is, I love your house, and, and this is why, and this is what I anticipate. This is the things that we do with it. I see nothing wrong with that at all. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And the fear of litigation that somebody somewhere might imagine. Well, okay, look, the, the, the bottom line is anybody can sue anybody for anything, but whether or not you're able to win, that's a whole different story. Anything wrong with love letters in a real estate transaction? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Joe in Waterford. Hi, Joe. Hi. What do you think? I think I think these letters are just totally obnoxious and out of line. I'm in the process of selling my home and purchasing a condo, and I hadn't, you know, bought a new home in probably thirty years. And when I was told I had to write a letter, I said, "You've got to be out of your mind." And they said, "Up, oh, that's just the way it is." And when I was receiving offers on my home, yes, the letters were very emotional. And I, I, you know, I felt bad, you know, when I had to decline some of the offers. But I just don't feel there's any place for it. You don't write a love letter when you're buying a car or going to the grocery store or going to Kohl's. No, you look at the product and you price it out. And that should be up. But but don't intend in, with all things being equal. Don't, right. I, I understand, you know, that, that you're not necessarily going to sell your house for twenty thousand dollars less for one offer than another. But but all things being equal, don't do. Do you have no interest in, for example, knowing who's going to buy your house and and, and what they might want to do with it? No, huh. absolutely not. I oh. just nope. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Th- thanks. Well, I, I look. I mean, I, I I get it, and I I guess I, I I didn't find it to be obnoxious, and I guess I didn't find it to be off putting. And, and like I said, I mean, maybe maybe it is the the difference. Some people are are not emotional about that stuff at all, and I, I understand. At the end of the day, it's a business transaction. But for me, and maybe this is just for me. Like I say, my my late wife loved our house. She she loved it from the day they moved in. She loved it till the day she passed away. And, and so she, she loved it. And so I just, I, again, all things being equal, it, it's not that I, you know, got lowballed on the price, but I, I read this letter and I, I admit, I said this, okay, I, I can see this. Th- these people, they're telling me, no, of course, you know, they, they could turn around and sell it two days later. It's not an enforceable thing, but, but I mean, they're, they're telling me they want this to be kind of their forever house. And, and yeah, I think, I think my late wife would have looked at that and smiled at that and said, Jeff, I'm, I'm glad that this house that we we lived in together for so many years and that we loved, I'm glad it's going to another family that's going to appreciate it. I guess it made me feel a little bit good. Joe and Mequon. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Joe. Um, just, a couple of quick, just a couple of quick points. Uh, first of all, you know, it's kind of funny the realtors say that because they totally play on emotion. <laughs> when they go through this process with you, well, right, so yeah. Plus, you got you got to buy it. Is, you got to buy now. You got to send, make, put this offer in now, or else it's going to be gone or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then kind of second point first is that my, when my daughter was buying a house, I said, "Don't be careful what you say because they're going to play on it." So she takes me through the house with her with her husband, and first thing the realtor says is, "Can't you just see little, you know, Tommy in the backyard swinging on a swing?" Well, my daughter must have said that because she was pregnant. 
And next thing you know, she's trying to play in that emotion. And so they're doing that on the reverse end. So that's first thing first. Yeah. So the second point, though, being that, you know, I think that I don't think there's a legal issue mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah, I guess you could stretch anything into that. But I think the real issue is the fact that these realtors, if you start showing emotion, they know that they're going to probably get stuck with some kind of a bidding war. And that mm-hmm. now we've got people that really want this house. I don't think that happened to you because it was only one buyer that actually you appreciated it. But if it's a counter offer type right. thing, you know, all of a sudden you get it and go, well, geez, these guys really want it. Let's just not budge. Right. And I think it just hurts their process. And that's why they came out with this. And, but like I said, but I think on the reverse end, if you're a buyer, they're trying to appeal to every emotion that you show. Oh, I like the size of this bedroom. You know, next thing you know, they're going to be repeating in your ear. Right. Oh, the size of the bedroom, you know. Yeah. So, no. So again, that's all I had to say. But no, I, I think that. Go ahead. Yeah. No. No. Th- thanks for calling, Joe. And, and and I get right. See, I I think the the legal thing is stretch. I understand. Like our last caller found this to kind of be obnoxious. That that was not my that that was not my feeling of that. And again, I I, I understand that there's this emotion that comes into play. But the the truth is, people do get do get attached to things, even though we all understand that you shouldn't love stuff that you that can't love you back. But but people do get get attached to these sort of things. Now, for example, in, in my case, you know, the, the people made this offer and then they put a pretty tight time limit on it. So we, we just it was the first people. It was a fair price. I, I took it. If I decided to take the risk of saying, OK, well, I'm going to say no to them and keep it on the market for another week or two. Could I've got more? I don't know. It could have gotten no offers and this could have gone away. So, I mean, I was comfortable with that. But at the same time, I, I did. I admit it made me feel a, a little bit. It made me feel a little bit better. Let's talk to Holly. Holly and Kenosha you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. I see nothing wrong with this. Hi. I see. Hi, Dal. I see nothing wrong with this, uh, that they sent you a love letter. I did the same things when I used to have cars. I would put all my repair bills in a big envelope and uh, on the passenger side of the seat with a note. I hope you will love and take care of this car as much as I did Mm -hmm. because I loved all of my cars and also, and realistically, if the new owner has a problem, he'll go to the repairman. Oh, well, you need this and that. And yeah. he can say, well, look, no, the previous owner just to put this in uh, six months ago. And also, I believe wholeheartedly, Sue, your beloved wife, was looking down on all of you when that real estate transaction was made. Yeah. She was looking down upon all of you. Yeah. Well, I, I like yeah. thanks. For, I, I, that's very kind of you, Holly. I'd like to think that. Okay, here's a text. Jeff, we sold a home one week ago, and the realtor wouldn't show us any of the love letters due to what you just said. He said we should know nothing about the buyers due to fear of lawsuits about discrimination. Well, I, I think, I mean, again, it's one of these things that you talk about theory and, and practice. In any, event, in any event, we ended up meeting the buyers during the walkthrough, and they were lovely people, but candidly, I still miss seeing the notes. What kind of world are we living in? Um, yes, I mean, you know, <laughs> I I got it. Um, Jeff, how do you know the letter is not made up? Well, I... I it's always interesting to get texts from people who are more cynical than I am. Well, you're right, exactly right. There, there, there's nothing that says that somebody somebody can write you this letter and just completely lie to try to pull on your heartstrings and stuff, and, and you don't know because they can they could turn around after you sell them the house and they can you know try to flip it or whatever. So there's no guarantees. I guess I'd like to think 
most people are kind of decent and wouldn't do that. But that's that's just me. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.